Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Okie doke, let's start at 3.30. I hope most of the people on the phone have the latest 20-pager. I'll try to talk through Exhibit D. Because we've been spending time on healthcare and we'll spend more time on healthcare, and because the debt ceiling is in the news a lot, Exhibit D is a two-page memo that that I, I would represent it as something the Lawrence family is working on. Uh, I spent some time over the years. Brian R., as you call him, has spent some time. We're kind of hoping our, our his son, our grandson, Max, is going to spend some time. Let me talk you through this page because it is important. The It's based on a document that the U.S. government puts out every year, which is mandated by legislation, and it's in effect. I used to call it a 10K for the U.S. government. It's not really. It's about 140 pages long, and it has more blanks than things you But it does have a lot of information, and the Treasury Department prepares it. The Secretary of the Treasury signs it. Now, let me lead you through what we think it says, boiling the 140 pages down to two pages. Interest payments on the debt were $475 billion last year. Based on their projections at a 4% interest rate, the interest on the debt is going to grow from $475 billion to $1.4 trillion by 10 years from now. That would be more at that time than the defense budget, which is predicted to be $1.1 trillion. The way people measure how much debt is too much is as a percentage of, of our gross domestic product. And if you try to hold that percentage constant, which is about one-to-one one now, in other words, debt held by the public, federal debt held by the public related to GNP is about one-to-one. One. In order to hold it flat, you would have to increase the amount raised by personal income taxes to from 8%, which they've averaged since World War II, to a much, much higher level, which I think is just not possible. Uh, you'd have to you'd have to raise personal income tax rates to 75 or 80 percent. So I don't think that's going to happen. The debt, the GNP is just going to go nuts. I mean, it'll, it, you know, it'll go to two or three times our GDP. So how do you solve this? We spend twice as much, almost twice as much, on healthcare as any other developed country. Last year, we spent 19% of our gross domestic product 
a much better healthcare system is run by most of these other countries for 11 or 12 percent of gross domestic product. So, in order to get out of the structure we have, healthcare spending has to come down. Now, just to turn to Exhibit A, which is U.S. government revenues and expenses, you can see there the Medicare spending, Medicaid spending. Last year, the total of those two uh, were, say, a trillion six, 20% of our GNP would be, would be about four and a half. So we're not just talking about taking Medicare down or Medicaid down, talking about taking all spending down. But that, that is the one thing that would solve, solve the issue. When we're looking at healthcare, and we're going to turn pretty quickly to page 15, we have to focus, I think, on businesses which generate a great deal of value for what they cost. Uh, the cost is lower, the value is greater. And unless we have those businesses, we need to <laughs> emphasize investing in healthcare and look elsewhere. Because I want to don't want to take up too much time with the opening comments. I'm going to skip a comment I would otherwise make on natural gas, which is Exhibit B has been adjusted to increase power consumption because that's what's going on. We can see from the weekly numbers that come in from Platts so that the deficit for this year was three and a half trillion, which is impossibly large down to 2.4, but over the next, you know, before next week, I'm gonna spend more time on it. So we will definitely hit natural gas next week. With that, I'd like to get to page 15, where there are a couple changes that are worthwhile discussing. Page 15 has three companies on it, and there'll be a fourth company after this weekend. Pfizer and Moderna, on and the difference is that these numbers for Pfizer and Moderna are what their cash flow is going to be this year without all the COVID vaccines. And it raises the enterprise value times free cash flow for Pfizer, which was like six times or something, it's going to be 13 times. For Moderna, it goes all the way up to 40 times. In effect, Moderna will have very little free cash flow based on their own forecast for this year or annualizing their first quarter results. Now, why include Pfizer and Moderna? Well, let's focus on Moderna. Moderna, if you go back three years, had no revenues. It was just kind of a, a, a R&D shop. And the two entities that came up with a vaccine using messenger RNA, and I'm going to quickly get out of that and turn it over to Jason, where Moderna and BioNTech, and when you look at this page next week, we're going to have BioNTech as the fourth company. Pfizer realized that BioNTech, which is a German company, had 
the vaccine very quickly, you know, within a matter of weeks, you know, of, of, of figuring out what the structure of the virus was. But it's very impressive. Now, Ken McDermott and BioNTech use that to, you know, to cure cancer or do other things, maybe. And certainly if you read Moderna, you read BioNTech, you read their investor slides, and not that, that's what they're trying to do. But assuming COVID stays under control, they're going to have to do that with cash on hand. Fortunately, Moderna, with all the earnings, has, you know, like over $13 billion of cash on hand. BioNTech has even more. So what they are are research operations to see whether their technology can work elsewhere that don't have to raise money. They have the cash on hand. Now, if you look at the Moderna numbers on page 15, R&D budget's $3 billion. Their SG&A is $1 billion. So, I mean, $15, $16 billion will go away pretty quickly because uh, those, those, those numbers are going to continue. Presumably, there'll be a couple billion dollars. You know, at some point somewhere in the world, someone will be using their COVID vaccine. So they'll have a little bit of chip in there. BioNTech will look very similar. And I just didn't have enough time last weekend to get BioNTech down. The, the third company here we talked about last week, it's Lantheus. It's a company that Mike and Jason found. It had a pretty good first quarter. It's a very interesting company. I think we could put it into the category of a healthcare company that's creating a heck of a lot more value than what it's what it what it costs. And with that, I'd like to have Jason, I guess. I think Jason knows more than Mike and I combined and and, 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 and that's not much contribution for me. So over to Jason on whether or not Moderna and BioNTech are worthy things to look at from an investment point of view. Or is is developing that vaccine just kind of a once a generation thing for each of them? So we we would be better off looking elsewhere. So over to you, Jason. Yeah, <clears throat> something you said, you know, exemplifies how I think about those two companies exactly. I think developing that vaccine is a once in, gen- in a generation thing, but like you said, they they each have tens of billions of dollars now available to them to continue their research where in the past they were cash burning. I guess they're still going to be cash burning in the future, but they needed to raise that cash. And now they, they have a stockpile where they can draw from for the next couple of years uh, as they, they've each of them have started numerous clinical studies on, on different therapies. BioNTech has, they have a couple treatments in the works for melanoma, colorectal cancer and, and a shingles vaccine. Moderna, I think, has some some kind of similar therapies, but the one on their on their radar was an RSV vaccine, and that took a big hit uh, this week when GSK got approval for for their version of a of an RSV vaccine, and kind of seeing that Moderna is probably uh, they might have a better vaccine in the works, um, TBD on that, but they're getting out ahead of that, and they're they've launched a a very wide television campaign to educate the population of the availability of an RSV vaccine and that they're the ones providing it. So that, that kind of 
puts a damper on Moderna in my mind. That was kind of their their nearest to completion series of trials. That was their only one in phase three, I believe. Whereas BioNTech, I don't believe they have any in phase three, but they have numerous ones in phase two. So, but conducting these trials are, are hugely expensive. Each, each therapy is going to be, you know, several billion dollars to push forward from where they're at now. So they will burn those stockpiles of cash, but they might in the end have a, a, a longer lasting treatment out there. That's not just a, you know, once in a generation, a couple year flash in the pan. So, you know, if, if BioNTech comes out with a treatment for, for melanoma, for instance, that's super common and, and that could be a, a huge value out to society. Good. Anything to add, Mike? What, uh, Jason, I haven't talked explicitly about this, but the public's a lot better educated about vaccines now. In some sense, maybe not wanting them at all, but in a lot of cases, you know, people talked at length about whether they wanted the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine, right? So in a way, if there is an RSV vaccine that comes out ahead and does all the marketing work for Moderna, they may be able to, assuming the science is good and the, you know, the, their vaccine is better, a fast follow strategy could be really good. Just cover for us RSV. This existed before COVID and is a significant problem. Nothing on the range of, of COVID, but to give us a couple of minutes on the need for uh, a vaccine for RSV, but over to you, Mike, on what's going on here. Yeah, I'll tell you my high-level perspective on RSV. Um, I didn't even know what it was until Josie, my daughter, was in daycare and got it because apparently you know sometimes it's called daycare disease because all the kids in daycare get it so it's just a really bad cold and kids seem to get it worse than adults because apparently there's some level uh, you know most people get it by the time they're two so you have some level of immunity and protection built in again this is in my layman's perspective but it also can be very deadly for elderly people so um you know, again, I think that first RSV vaccine was targeted specifically for elderly. elderly. So presumably there's additional trials going f- to test it in younger right. people. Right, right. I remember a couple of months ago, Mike and Jason, so pleased to find Lanthius because it was a company that had significant growth. If you, again, for those of you who don't have page 15, the, uh, they're growing. I mean, I think they're clearly growing at 30% a year in both sales and free cash flow. And they do have free cash flow. So my calculation, I, I think Mike and Jason have probably got a much better fix on this, but I believe they're trading for about 25 times free cash flow with their free cash flow growing 30%. And what's happened here is they had a base business. It, it's It's a it hasn't always been called Lanthius. Uh, it is based in Massachusetts and around Boston. I think it used to be called New England Nuclear or something like that. Mike, why don't you just lead us through kind of the history of this business and, and, and how they got into this particular product that's worked so well for them. And then we can have Jason explain to us uh, the particular product is a way to figure out whether or not people have had enough therapy for uh, 
prostate cancer. And when, when you're finished with all that, you know, we're, we're, we're going to lavish a fair amount of time this week on these two things that we'll, we will get back to software and chips at the very end. But we'll have Jason explain what he thinks the chances are they're being able to use similar technology for other cancers. So over to you, Mike. Yeah, so at a high level, Lantheus is a diagnostic company, and they made a very bold and aggressive move a couple of years ago to acquire a company called Progenix. So the long story short on Progenix is they had lost a patent suit to Novartis, sort of a uh, dispute as to who had the rights to this, to this IP because a university in Europe license it to two different companies. So they lost this case and then Lantheus came in and bought them and appealed and won the appeal. So it was, it's one of those things that you, you know, a company like Lantheus, you don't expect something like that to happen out of the blue. So they must've had a pretty high level confidence that Progenics was kind of outgunned by Novartis and that they could mount a good appeal case it ties into some of their expertise. And I think I'll pass it off to Jason here because he's gone really deep and probably can explain them better than me. Yeah, yeah, sure. So as Hunt alluded to, the, the company is is quite old. They were founded in the 50s and they, they were originally called New England Nuclear Corp. Um, and they've been passed around through acquisition, I believe through DuPont, Bristol-Myers, and then uh, spun out from Bristol-Myers into a, a private equity fund owned them for a while before they IPO'd. So through that history, yeah, they were, they were um, selling a, a line of contrast agents for ultrasounds and then must have became aware of, of this, this prostate-specific membrane antigen that, that was being researched in that German university. And then you know, they must have known the science well that it was going to work in order to jump in and, and acquire the company, but also acquire a big... IP battle with Novartis at the same time. And, and it's fortunate they did because they're generating a, a lot of revenue from that. So since the call last week through this week, they've, they've reported their first quarter earnings and they were excellent. They, I think they commanded a little bit of pricing power and we're still trying to analyze how many treatments they provided, but revenue it, pretty, pretty well exceeded expectations. And then they increased their, their, their guidance for the full year by 10%. Maybe we should talk through the main drivers of the, the revenue. Cause uh, I mean, half, half the revenue is from the progenics product. I think if their revenues, you know, just under a billion dollars, I think half comes from the prostate business. Yeah. More than half now, actually. Yeah. Right. More, more than half. And their, their legacy business with the ultrasound cost contrast agents is still growing about nine or ten percent as well, but this this prostate cancer diagnostic is is growing exponentially. Yeah, at some time, at some point, it will reach saturation, right? Because there's only so many people that get diagnosed with prostate cancer. But obviously, the really exciting thing about this is it just does a much better job of detecting it than anything else that's out there. Right, right, and and to the point where it, it can find tumors that have spread through the body you'll be able to diagnose that earlier, treat it earlier, better health outcomes because of that. And, and also part of that deal with, with settling the, the patent case with Novartis is 
Novartis has a, a treatment for prostate cancer, and and then Lanthius is going to supply the diagnostic to image the tumors for any anyone that gets the Novartis treatment. So they they kind of have a deal there as part of settling that that patent case. And this technology actually gets more exciting too because it not only is good for delivering in this case whatever the material is to be able to image the cancer, but they're now in trials, fairly late stage trials to yeah. um, deliver medicine to be able to potentially non-surgically treat the cancer. Right. So if you think of the, the diagnostic as a, as a, a little particle that attaches to prostate cancer cells, but prostate cells, and uh, they, they bind another particle to it. So in the diagnostic case, it's a particle that lights up in a, in a PET scan. Um, for the treatment side, it's a, a beta particle that imparts a little bit of radiation into the cell enough to, to kill the adjacent cell. And they are in, in phase three study with that, and it just got FDA fast-track approval. And, and the, the upside to that is they expect their first data readout by the end of this year, and they're going to start working on a, a submission package for the FDA using that data to see if they can uh, to get earlier approval with that before they you know, fully complete their phase three trial. Applicability, just quickly, because we, we can't not talk about new developments in, in chips and software. Just over the next five years, do you think it's 50% likely that they'll figure out how to use it with an, another cancer type, or, or, or is that too high a probability? I'd probably say that's that's too high of a probability. I think the general the general idea works, and there and someone's going to use that idea to image probably most other forms of cancer, whether it's Lanthius and their specific their specific technology is is to be seen. But I think this form of of imaging is going to be widely used. I want to add one thing on this because I think it is a non-trivial part of a different differentiator for this part product because they are using, apparently, again, we can only get so much information about what's kind of behind the scenes, but some artificial intelligence technology for the imaging. So there is a little bit of a tie of software to the treatment or to the uh, diagnostic. So... You know, it seems to work very well for prostate cancer. There was they tried it for ovarian cancer, and it That's did right. not work well, blocked by organs. And they're in trials on breast cancer. So, right. the, you know, it seems like if the cancer is not blocked as much visually from an imaging perspective, it's easier and may work better. That's right. Yeah, and 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 from what I read from analysis of of the trials that failed in ovarian cancer, it just it couldn't detect all of the sites where tumors could grow, but it wasn't, it wasn't that it wasn't effective. It just was only partially effective where it had like a clear line of sight, if you will. Right. Well, by next week, we'll have BioNTech down on page 15 and Mike and Jason uh, will be able to discuss, you know, again, assessing probabilities where using this messenger RNA technology, you know, where they, they might have a, you know, a chance. You know, I'll, I'll continue to say 50-50 chance and then extend the term to more than five years. But that's a tricky part of 
this kind of investing is you can spend a great deal of money and and fail, you know, in, in phase two or phase three trials or not, not even get to phase three trials. With that, we spent a, a bunch of time on AI. And I think that the best company we found is not, not, not that Microsoft isn't going to be able to use their $10 billion commitment to open AI, help their products. But clearly on page three, the leader in the clubhouse is NVIDIA because to run these programs, you need GPUs, lots of GPUs, and you need the, the software that NVIDIA that comes with the GPUs. Any other news in the past since we were together last Wednesday that I think is noteworthy on AI? Maybe we should talk about the additional smaller models and the move to smaller models. I think that'd be great. Right. One thing that happened just hours before this call, um, Google had their I.O. event where they did announce they're going to release a series of models, I think named after animals, but they're they're from different sizes. So the, the size that is being used when you go to Bing and try it out, the one that's kind of like chat GPT is the largest model. Um, and then they have a series of sizes that go down to one that they expect that will be able to run on a cell phone. And then the next one up is maybe your laptop runs it and, and so forth. So they are just like Meta that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. They're, they're attempting to shrink these models in a way that they can run on end, end user devices. And I think that just provides powerful economics where you don't have to have server farms and huge data centers to run every request for an AI application. Certainly they're going to exist and some things have to go there, but as much as, as, much as you can push it onto the user's device, you know, the, the, the better performance and the, the better economics you'll have. And the implication of that is maybe, so don't go run out and sell your NVIDIA stock, but maybe the implication of that is that the current potential market size might be overestimated for NVIDIA's hardware. Again, don't run out and make any changes, but it's something to be aware of, especially as more, as this stuff develops and more of it gets into the open source community. Right. It's definitely a risk on the horizon. We, we were discussing that earlier today, but it's still going to be a ways off. None of these things have been proven to be to run on a cell phone in any useful manner yet. And the benefit of Jason's been covering this for a couple of weeks, that the company that you would pick out if, if you could get it to run on a cell phone would be, uh, would be Meta because of their 3 billion users. And also that, that despite the the hostilities between Apple and Meta, where Apple, you know, kind of disabled their ability to track customers, caused a significant dip in Facebook or Meta. They now basically are potentially allies in this effort. But over to you, Mike. I guess I, I would jump in. That's absolutely right. That that you know they depend on each other hugely. So. The iPhone user is the the highest gener revenue generating user for the for the Facebook family of apps. So they need they need Apple and iPhones, and and vice versa. The the users come to use their cell phone all day long because they're scrolling through Instagram or formerly Facebook, and and they they definitely depend on each other. I think 
I think if these models do run on cell phones, that's a huge driver for Apple. For me personally, and I think a lot of people are in the same situation, that there hasn't been a real catalyst to make me buy a new iPhone in the last several years. But if, if this is like a feature on the next iPhone where they roll the software out only to the, to the latest phones, you'll see it as a real, a real need for everyone to upgrade. Yeah, hmm. I agree. Who would be providing the AI models? Would it, would it be likely to be Apple or Meta or, or would they be tied into some kind of cloud service like Amazon or Microsoft or Google or Oracle or how, how exactly you envision this working if you had, you know, something other than very large language models like, like open AI stuff. I think all of the above, they're going to run on the phone, in the cloud, and, and be available from all of those providers. Maybe yeah. it's worth, since you're a software developer, to talk a little bit about how you write software and how just pulling a package into a software application, you have that option versus so, making an API call to ChatGPT or OpenAI. Right. So so NVIDIA is is providing these base models and Presumably, you'd, you'd license them from them, pay them some money, and you can download it and incorporate it into your software. The other method is you can use what's called open source, so it's available to download online. Um, you just link to that software, and then when you when you package up your your iPhone app in this case, it downloads that and bundles it in with your app, and then that all gets downloaded to your iPhone. So the software developers can pull these, these packages from anywhere. They can be free ones. They can be provided by Meta. They can be purchased from NVIDIA. And then the end result is it's packaged in your app and lives on your phone. And it's in the best interest of, we think, both Facebook, Meta, and uh, Apple, that it's easier for more people to get their hands on, and, and which means lower prices. So they're kind of t- following the strategy of how do I commoditize AI models. NVIDIA, Microsoft, and so far, as far as we can tell, Google are going another direction where you know we're going to try to make all the money on it and control it end-to-end, which no, neither of those strategies are bad. It's, and, and it's probably all will be successful. It's just we don't know how, how big either one's going to be and at what rate you know, a, a preferential solution will will arise. So it's a, it's an exciting time for this stuff. And I think that we, we could make this call or make this spend 15 minutes on it every week and we wouldn't cover it anywhere yeah. near all the, all the developments. What we'll do next week, we'll cover biotech and, and Moderna, any update on Lantheus, but let's, uh, let's move back to half the call being on AI. With that, we're over. So uh, everyone have a good seven days and we'll be in touch next Wednesday. Take care. The views expressed on this podcast are the host alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, 
Neither the host nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information, and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to, and no reliance should be placed on, the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The host and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.